No mai tauti mai ki te whakarongo ki tēnei kōrero e pāna ki te taha pākea. Ka rere ngā mihi ki a ngai tu ahurere, nō rātou tēnei whenua, arā ki a ngai tahu whānui ki a koutou katoa, tēnā koutou katoa. My name is Jeanette King and today I'm in conversation with Professor Alison Jones um, to talk about um, her wonderful memoir, This Pākehā Life. Um, Alison's coming to us from the miracles of the internet from Auckland, so sorry that she couldn't be here with us today. Um, tēnā koe, Alison. Uh, great to see you and um, congratulations on a wonderfully rich, thoughtful and frank memoir. Um, I actually want to start with the title of the book, This Pākehā Life. Why did you choose it? Um, this Pākehā Life... <laughs> The title was partly to encourage us Pākehā to settle into our unsettledness, maybe. You're incredibly frank in a number of places in this memoir. Why did you think it was important to expose yourself to a certain extent in this way? Well, I know that people really enjoy a good personal story. I know that I do. If I read somebody's personal story about something they've done or some experience they've had that I relate to, I really enjoy it. I really get into it and I can relate to it. So I decided to write a very frank account um, because I think this is a, is a field of engagement that requires frankness, that requires openness, that requires courage. Because so many of us Pākehā are fascinated by Māori, want interactions with Māori, but also have a lot of ambivalent and anxious feelings about that. And um, I guess I just wanted to make it real. I could have written a book, I, I couldn't have, but somebody could have written a book that was full of finger wagging and do this and don't do that and you're all colonisers and whatever and you're all white supremacists or whatever. Um, but I don't find that discourse really useful or interesting. So I decided to write about all the um, hilariously stupid things I've done in my life and uh, re related to Te Māori and just make it very real. And so, yeah, that's why I ended up being so frank and, and self-revealing. And I think people really relate to that too because I've had so many people say, oh, I felt like that, I, but I didn't want to tell anybody. <laughs> so I thought I'd put myself out there. One of your chapters is called Tricky Memories. Um, yeah, you had a tricky memory of your own on a personal level. Um, tell us a bit about that and what, yeah, how that really, I think it really speaks to a wider message as well. Yeah, that was one of the fascinating um, sort of things that happened when I wrote the book that I had never expected to happen. I had a memory, and I was writing about from my childhood and how as a young Parker girl born in Auckland and living in Danny Burke, um, you know, I was, I was just remembering my, my primary school years and how the girl in the school who fascinated me the most and who I thought was my friend um, and who I admired so much and went to her house for lunch and, you know, just had this rich, wonderful memory of her, Māori girl called Maria. Um, and I thought when I was writing this book, I think I should go back and visit some of these places because I haven't been back to Danny Burke forever. And so through social media, I got in touch with Maria, who's, who was in Danny Burke, and I went down there to visit her, and we met, and it was great. We hadn't seen each other for something like 
60 something years, any, uh, 60 years, and um, I was recalling our school days together. <laughs> And I told her a story about how I loved coming to her house for lunch and where her house was and what was in her house and, you know, all my memories of her bedroom and so on. And she she just laughed. And she said, no, that didn't happen. You never came to my place for lunch. And we didn't have boil-up on the table. We used to have our boil-up on the, on the stove and then it would be served in bowls to the table. And my father wasn't a fisherman, you know, because I was remembering her father as a fisherman and he had a bucket full of shark fetuses. I mean, the whole thing. And um, and I remember her bedroom, it was full of beds and she had two sisters. She said, I don't have two sisters. So, and she said, I know who you're remembering. You're remembering so-and-so who lived in the same street, a Pakeha family whose father was a fisherman and so on. And I was absolutely astonished by this because I realised that my memory of this one, and I always used to think, you know, this was my kind of awakening with regards to relationships with Māori, that I had this really wonderful relationship with this Māori girl. It was the kind of beginning of my fascination with the Māori world. And it was, it was a fantasy. It was somehow a desire that I had for my own life. And um, it made me really think about how I construct my memory, how I remember things, and why I remember certain things in a certain way. And you're absolutely right. It does resonate with the kind of national nostalgia slash amnesia. You know, we want to have have great race relations and our Maori, you know, blah, blah. And we still want that. But we know it isn't the case. And increasingly now, of course, with all this great history that's out there and so much more that's being said, we know our history is full of really terrible things that happened, um, and including, you know, the, the dreadful dispossession of Māori from their economic and cultural base. And I think for many of us, it's actually quite hard for us to get our heads around without falling into some terrible feeling of shame or depression or, or, or maybe trying to make it right. There's some response to that, and, we, and many of us don't quite know how to, how to deal with it. And I guess the book really was a story about my coming to bear or uh, be able to stand, if you like, Māori anger, Māori frustration, Māori alienation, um, and all the kinds of things that are, are necessarily part of the relationship between Māori and Pākehā. It was, it's been a kind of lifetime of, of um, getting to grips with that and making it part of my everyday life, I guess. So do you think your feelings about how, what it means to you to be Pākehā has changed over your lifetime? Uh, definitely. It wasn't a dramatic change. I mean, my parents, as English immigrants who knew absolutely nothing about Māori and just soaked up the old stereotypes from the 1950s and 60s that Māori land was wasted and Māori were lazy and Māori colours were garish and Māori time was late and all that sort of thing, which we all, my age, all remember. I never had, never shared those views. I listened to them. I heard my father and, and utter them. But I always felt that he somehow had it wrong. But as an adult, I think having more and more to do with Māori, te Māori, Māori politics, Māori history, I'm just learning more deeply all the time. And I'll continue learning forever about 
the complexities and the depths of uh, the relationship, of the past, of the present, of Māori knowledge, all those kinds of things. I just continue to be astonished at how much I can learn um, all the time. Mm. Um, you talk about when you lived in Tauranga. There was quite a difference between Pākehā um, that were living on one side of the street and, and Māori on the other. That's when I lived in Bethlehem, just out of um, Tauranga. That was actually in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and in those days, if anyone's been to Bethlehem now, you'll see that it's all built up. It's actually part of the city. But in those days, it was, um, it was rural. And I lived on a, a street, a, a road called Carmichael's Road that's still there. And I was a paper girl. I earned money by chucking papers, the Herald, into people's driveways early in the morning on my bicycle. And um, I noticed on one side of the road, the harbour side of our road, were all Māori houses. That were Many of them were, were very run down. Some of them didn't even have water, running water. Um, on my side of the road, where, where our family lived, there were quite nice houses, and that was the beginning of the kiwi fruit um, revolution. And there were people in Pākehā people who had new homes or big homes on that side of the road. And it was a very, very stark thing. And, and as I mentioned in the book, one day I just happened to see in a shop window this old map, which indicated Carmichael's Road, and I was, of course, fascinated. I was um, at this stage about 17, 16, and I, there's my road, and, it's, and it was a dividing line, and it said on the harbour side, it said, area returned to natives. So I did a bit of research on this later. I just took that in. I thought, oh, that's interesting, but I didn't think much of it. And then later when I came to think more about it, um, I read about the confiscations of land that happened around Tauranga and how the local um, hapū were forced onto this tiny, tiny little patch of land by the water. Mm. Um, and, and I found dreadful accounts of people actually starving in the early 1900s. And I remember so clearly as a child waiting at the bus stop on that road with the Māori kids and being extremely aware of our differences. Um, and although we like to say, oh, yes, we all got on the same bus, we all went to the same school, we all got on well, well, yes, in some ways we did, but their lives were utterly, utterly, utterly different from mine. And they just, you know, they were on a different trajectory necessarily because they just didn't have the, the resources that I had, and this was caused by a very specific moment in our history in the 1860s when a huge amount of that area was just confiscated uh, by the government because the hapū in that area were supporting the Waikato tribes um, against the incursions of the um, British and colonial soldiers who were coming down to try and open up the Waikato to Pākehā settlement. Mm. Yeah, so it was kind of, I was kind of living right in that spot, you know, and it made it very real for me. You know, with all the ructions with South Africa, they used to show on television the Soweto slums and, and so on, and then they'd show the white people's wealthy houses as this kind of juxtaposed situation, shock horror. And I thought, well, actually, 
this is exactly what I've experienced in my own country. And the thing that fascinated me most about it, I guess, was that um, people weren't talking about it, you know, that there was, it was as though it couldn't be spoken about, it was certainly never raised that Māori were poor or Māori had been dispossessed or that we had these gross inequalities in our own country. The word Pākehā, how accepting do you feel um, most Pākehā of using that term to describe themselves? Is it still a minority perspective or, uh, or not? What do you think? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I think I live in rather rarefied yeah. environments as well, you know, liberal, inner-city, bloody Auckland, <laughs> uh, university, Māori groups. So um, I don't come across a lot of resistance to the term related to, no, I'm not a Pākehā, I'm a Kiwi, or I'm a European New Zealander. I don't tend to come across that, but I know it's out there. Um, because a number of Pākehā people say, I don't want to be named by Māori. You know, I want, I'm not in relation with Māori and I don't want to be, therefore I'm not going to be a Pākehā because that's their name for me. Mm. Um, whereas I absolutely love that term. I find it really handy. And when I go and visit my relatives in England, I, I'm a Pākehā, you know, and I, and, I, and I hold on to that identity with a lot of pride because... It does relate me to Māori, to my colleagues, to my friends, um, to the whole Māori world that makes New Zealand the unique place that it is. Um, and so for me, it's, it's fundamental. And I know that's a lot of other people who are coming to that realisation and not so frightened of it. I know for many years it was, some people believed it was a term of abuse, and so they were, they were frightened of it because they didn't know what it meant. And, of course, it's just, um, as far as we know, a very ancient term referring, referring to um, something like pakepakeha, who were white, pale skin or pale folk, like fairy folk or ghostly figures that existed in the Māori world. And so when us Europeans hoved over the horizon, you know, Cook and all his white um, people on board, apart from Tupaya, um, they said, oh, the Pākehā have arrived, you know. <laughs> and so, um, but of course, we weren't human to them at that point until Tupaya explained that we were human. But that word about the paleness um, has stuck, and um, it's a perfectly good word, I reckon. Mm. You start off the memoir as the child of, English immigrants, um, and you grew up in that way, but then you found out later in life, I found this really fascinating, that um, you have got several ancestors who are involved quite closely in key moments of New Zealand history. I think one who witnessed the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi and kept a journal of it, and another was a parliamentarian in 19th century, and another fought in the New Zealand wars. That must have been an amazing um, revelation. Yeah, that was gobsmacking. That was amazing because I'd always been brought up, as you say, as a, um, I was born in Auckland the year after my parents arrived as 10-pound poms from, um, from England. And my mother was adopted and she was brought up in an orphanage. No, she wasn't adopted. She was brought up in an orphanage and my father was from the north of England. And I had absolutely no sense that I was from here. 
New Zealand. I, I was a you know I was a child of people who called England home and who thought that the Kiwi accent was dreadful. And I was taught not to say a and wear jandals and jeans and all the things that people used to do. And then quite by chance, um, out of the blue, I learnt that um, I actually have a long history of family from my mother's birth mother's line into New Zealand. And in fact, I've probably got some cousins in the audience right now um, who are related to Andrew Buchanan, who came out in, I think it was about 1857, I'm probably going to be told I'm wrong, um, and became a parliamentarian. Um, so I, and, and these other relatives I uncovered through the work, actually, of um, Andrew Buchanan and his brother, who were from Christchurch University of Canterbury, um, who did this whakapapa work. And um, so when I knew about who my mother came from, because we didn't know that till, till I was quite old, we discovered her mother by chance, a whole other funny story. Then we discovered this whole whakapapa and it came back to New Zealand. And so that was, that was really amazing. So, yes, I had a, a relative who was at the signing of the treaty and who actually carried a copy of the first signing, the first version, to um, Governor Gipps, I think his name was, in um, Australia to announce before the, the, the treaty versions had gone around the country to be signed by everybody else, he was a captain of a ship and he took it to Australia um, to announce that um, New Zealand was now part of the, um, the Crown's domain via New South Wales. And also he wrote an article about the signing of the treaty and it was published in the Sydney Morning Herald. So it was, it was absolutely astonishing to me and really exciting. And even though I had great, great, great uncles who were actually soldiers um, or officers, should I say, um, in the land wars, both in Waikato and Taranaki, and they had come from India where they had been putting down the natives as well. I felt thrilled to have this ancestral connection, this kind of even violent connection with Māori. It, it, it seemed to just bring me home in a way that I'd always always felt at home, but it even it made it even more solid for me. And yeah, that was pretty that was pretty amazing. Yes, really, um, being you know made you more of a um, part of the colonial project than um, than than from later on. Um, yes. I just wanted to turn um, to a bit later in life. You've had some wonderful relationships with Maori women um, during your career, and particularly um, Kuni Jenkins. Can you tell us more about how that relationship, what it means to you? Yes. Cooney, the wonderful Cooney Jenkins. Um, I met her. She's from Ngāti Um And I met her many, many years ago when I was a lecturer at the, uh, when I became a lecturer at the University of Auckland uh, in, the, in education. And um, she was just one of my students, and I had a particular affinity for her. I really clicked with her. She was older than me, about 14 years older than me, and she and I became really good friends. And um, she did her master's with me and then her doctorate, and her doctorate, doctoral thesis was actually on the first school in New Zealand. 
the first Park School in New Zealand, which actually opened in 1816 in the Bay of Islands, well before the treaty. And um, I had, I suppose, the kind of dumb assumptions that everybody does that Māori were sort of forced into Pākehā schools well after the treaty and forced to speak English and, you know, everything was downhill from there. But I discovered through Cooney's teaching me and her research that there's this astonishing Māori history of the first school um, and how Māori went, travelled to Australia um, from 1805 onwards, really, um, from the north and lived in Sydney, lived in Parramatta, um, travelled to England, um, saw the Industrial Revolution, all sorts of things were going on. Um, and specifically asked for a teacher to be sent to um, New Zealand or the Bay of Islands to teach the children to read and write. And at this stage, no um, Pākehā lived in New Zealand, apart from a few whalers and sealers here and there, but there was no Pākehā settlement. Um, and this request was made probably, it could have been 18, as early as 1805. Um, and I became absolutely fascinated by her PhD project and got very involved with her and, and did some research myself. And we ended up writing a book, which was called He Courted or Words Between Us, First Māori Pākehā Conversations on Paper. And that was published by Huia, um, can't remember when, 2011, I think. And um, it was great. Uh, it just... She helped me to see from a Māori perspective. That's all I can say about it. Just listening to her talking about those stories. You know, we'd read the missionaries' diaries. And she could see right through them to the Māori story behind the words. And so I learned over a period of time to take on, to the extent that I could, a Māori view of, this, of these documents. And it was the most wonderfully enlightening and mind-bending experience. Um, and it, it just made me think differently from then on. I couldn't, couldn't go back to just seeing the surface of things. I, I had to go behind the lines, behind the words. And she was... Um, she and I also developed uh, another book, Two I, A Traveller in Two Worlds, um, a, a wonderful book, even though I do say so myself, um, about a young man and his friend, two young Māori men who travelled to England in 1818 and lived in Shropshire um, at the time and experienced the Industrial Revolution and saw the... Um, saw the iron run down like water. They described the molten iron and seeing the factories and things like that. And this is a wonderful book. In fact, it won an Ockham Award when it came out. Um, it's just, it, it led to her and I travelling to England. Um, well, it involved her and I travelling to England and doing quite a lot of research over there about and going to the houses where he lived, where the two men lived in 1818, and speaking to descendants of people who had met them, and finding diaries over there that mentioned their visits. I mean, it was 
it was really astonishing and fabulous. And so we wrote that into a book because actually Tuai from the Bay of Islands, he, he, we found out he was the most, well, we reckon, he was the most written about Māori person um, at that time because he appears in all sorts of diaries and newspaper clippings in England. And this is well before the treaty. So all this was going on. And Cooney introduced me to all this. We travelled north together to study, you know, to look at the, the past sites and things. And what was funny about that was um, she always used to say it was easier for me to go to the north as a researcher, as a Pākehā, than her to go to the north as a researcher, as a Ngāti Pro. <laughs> and so we used to have a good old laugh about that because people would tolerate me as a kind of inquiring Pākehā in a different way from the way they would tolerate her because they'd say, why don't you go some, do some research in your own place, you know, your own people, your own school? Um, and she would always say, you got into it first, you got the first school, you know, and we got them later, so I'm checking you out first. Uh, and that, that was always interesting. Mm. Just hearing you describe that, um, the trip of Tuai um, um, to Shropshire and living there really brings history to life. And um, I'm just reflecting that we're going to have changes to our school curriculum and bringing history more into play. What do you feel, how do you um, feel about that? Well, it's crucial. It has to happen. It's it's not a matter of whether you can have an opinion about it. Really, it's um far you know it's far overdue. We've got such wonderful stories in New Zealand um, and and wonderful wars. People love studying. Some people love studying wars, overseas wars. We've got our own wars. You know, we've got our own heroes, we've got our own fabulous stories, and I think we need to know them. We definitely do. And it will, it will help us have a sense of confidence in who we are and a more real sense of the complexities that we live with today because, of course, the past isn't just in the past. The past determines the present and the future. And, um, and so necessarily... We have to know these things, otherwise we float above the ground and we're not really of this place if we don't know, know our history. And it's not that it, people say, oh, it's boring, but I think, well, actually it's not. Um, once you start finding the stories, um, and they, a lot of them haven't been available, but when you start, and there's a lot of good historians and other people writing about our past now, so there's plenty to be going on with. Um, is, is there, though, um, a danger of um, Pākehā recolonising Māori um, by becoming confident and interacting in the Māori world? Is, is, is that a concern out there? Definitely. And it's one of my concerns. Um, I've been in situations where, you know, I don't know what it's like in Christchurch, it's probably just the same, but in Auckland you can barely get into a Māori language course um, all the introductory courses that are free and offered around the place are always chocker. Um, and they're chocker with Pākehā who want to learn to speak Māori, um, which is great. I mean, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But then I started to see as in some of the more advanced classes that the Pākehā students were actually speaking competently in Māori and the Māori students were kind of sitting back 
And I thought, oh, God, this is the same old dynamic that we're so aware of, that Pākehās gain this new skill and then start climbing to the top of whichever kind of environment they're in. Uh, and I think it is it's something that we have to really be thoughtful about. And so when we're learning the language, we need to learn about our history and the politics of the relationship rather than just grabbing this as a new skill so we can become better skilled Pākehā rather than actually seeing it as part of a Māori-led um, revitalisation process that we can support, but we don't want to turn it into another imperial moment, you know. I'm a classic Pākehā. Yeah. I'm a bossy boots and I know this and I want that and I want it all now, you know. <laughs> I want it to be sorted out by Monday and I want it all in one, two, three and, and no mucking about. Um, I'm classically like that and I'm well known as a bit of a, 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 bit of a, <laughs> a bossy boots in that sense. But boy, do I have to learn to just keep quiet and just go with the flow. You know, I get so utterly frustrated sometimes when everything takes so much longer than I want it to. I'm firing off emails and thinking, no, don't fire off another email. <laughs> um, just relax. It doesn't matter. The most important thing is maintaining the relationship and being engaged and just sticking with it. And, you know, for many Māori, although change is you know, coming too little too late. For many Māori, time is very different. It's a long, long struggle. And Pākehā like me who want it all done tomorrow are just sort of out of step. And, yes, it's a matter of learning to listen, to accept things which, you know, sometimes I might think, well, I don't know whether I agree with that, but that's not the point whether I agree with it or not, is actually beside the point. Because the thing is, relationships, you know, how you maintain relationships with people. You don't maintain relationships with people by telling them how to do something, that's for sure. So, yeah, that's a big thing I've learned. A big struggle for me. <laughs> I, yeah, I wonder whether we can come across as kind of needy. I know, and maybe you've had experience of this too, but other colleagues that... Um, my place of work, you know, say, how do I get involved? You know, I want to um, involve Māori more or be, you know, co-design research. How do I start? Um, and I find that's a really hard question to answer. It is. It's impossible to answer because people just want to be, a, they want to say, I'm doing some really interesting research on Māori, blah, you know. So I need a Māori person to work with. Uh, where's a Māori person to work with? And they should be really pleased because I'm doing this exciting work. Well, it just doesn't, it, it usually does not work like that um, because it is all about relationships and people I work with closely as Māori, I've spent years in relationships with them, you know, being their friend, teaching, whatever I'm doing, engaging, turning up, um, doing dishes, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's just being present. So Māori will always notice if you turn up to things, if you turn up to hui, to tangi, to Māori events, they'll notice you. They'll know who you are. And so if you're going to be then saying to your friend, hey, I'm thinking of doing some research, what do you reckon? Let's, let's think about it. They might say, yeah, okay, because they know you're there. 
you're not just diving in for the goodies and then going to dive out again. They know you're permanently there in a committed engagement, your heart's in the right place, you've got the right politics, all that kind of thing. And, and that's how it works. And you can't, you can't just leap into a relationship. It's quite interesting, though, Jeanette, I often get um, emails from people overseas who, um, from a range of countries, whether it's Germany or Chile or United States, who are saying, I've read about Māori education or I've read about Kohangareo, I've read about Kaupapa Māori philosophy, I read about Indigenous something in New Zealand. I really want to come and find out about it. Can you help me dot, 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 you know, work in a school, learn from Māori people, learn the culture, etc. And I've got to write back, you know, as though I'm writing to anthropologists of old. You can't just sort of pop up and say, hey, Māori people, I want to know about you. Sit down with me and tell me all about yourself. I mean, that ain't going to happen. And um, it's hard for people, whether they're from New Zealand or from overseas, to realise that I mean, just imagine if it was you, if someone popped into your house and said, hey, Alison, I'm really interested in you. You know, will you just let me ask you a whole lot of questions about your culture and what you have for dinner and, I mean, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> maybe maybe I'd be pleased because I'm such a bit, you know, I'm like that. But, I mean, why would any Māori person do it, a Māori group? They'd just say, oh, those Pākehās, they want something yet again. You know, what's in it for us? because they're just going to take away the, 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 the book or the article or the degree and make more money and we'll still be sitting here. So, yeah. Yeah. Besides, you know, le- trying to learn to listen over my lifetime, um, the other thing is, though, that I'm really struck by in my relationships with um, Te Ao Māori is manakitanga. Um, so... And maybe, you know, as a Pākehā uh, who's involved with the Māori world, you're, you're really realising you want, you want to keep these other Pākehā um, away sometimes because, you know, they're going to um, really, you know, outdo the welcome that they'll probably get to a certain extent, won't they? Um, but that's one real feature of Māoridom, isn't it, is, is the care and hospitality. Yeah, I mean, manaki is a really interesting word because, as you'll know, it's got the word mana in there, manaki. Um, and it's about maintaining people's mana. And the hospitality thing is about me maintaining you, your, you, know, you the guest, your mana as much. And that in itself maintains my mana. So there's a kind of relational thing built in there. Mm. Um, and, um, yes, it's a very, very important thing. And for me, being a kind of go-between in that situation, between the American who wants to come into the kōhanga and observe... I'm not going to put my. I'm not going to be the go-between mm. there because my loyalty and my relationship is with the Maori side of it, mm. and they might. If I ask them, they would probably say yes because it's me asking. Mm. But then that would not be good because this person would not be able to enact the relationship in a way. I don't think usually mm. in a way that works, and so it's my mana that's on the line too. My, you know, so that. It, it's all to do with who knows who, relationships, trust, politics, engagement. It's all a kind of wonderful 
network of engagement over time as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe like you, um, I sometimes look back and some of the things I've been involved in and the interactions and I just think, gosh, I was just so lucky that people have been so kind um, to, you know, someone who was quite naive at various times. So we've been very blessed, I feel. Yeah, well, I think Māori, I mean, I think Māori 99.9% .9 of the time are utterly, utterly generous. Yeah. They've been generous since Blinken 1769, really, when you look yeah. across um, all of the all of the time, the relationship we've had. Māori have constantly been available to have a relationship with Pākehā. And Māori are terribly relational people and they want the relationship, but it, they just don't often get back anything. Mm. And, and in fact, less than that, they get damaged in the longer term in that relationship. And yet still... Māori are willing to come back into that relationship and to yet again engage. I find this all the time and I'm, I'm filled with, um, I suppose, gratitude when I go into Māori situations and people are always so kind. And when Pākehās say, oh, I couldn't go into this marae or I couldn't go into that hui because, you know, or I wouldn't know what to say, you don't have to worry about it, you just relax. People are just nice to you. The fact that you were there and smiling is um, is all you need to to be, really. You know, and and, and being humble and being respectful, etc. It's when you start marching around and looking like you own the place that that problems arise. But otherwise, I can't really understand um, when Pākehās say they're too scared to go into a Māori situation, like go to a tangi or go to a hui or go on the marae or something, because I've always found people wonderful, especially the older ones. Mm. And now that I've got grey hair, of course, <laughs> I can get away with anything. <laughs> Your book is really beautifully written, and I just absolutely loved it. And, but it doesn't finish with a completely rosy picture of the future. Yeah, I mean, that's true. It doesn't sort of, I don't end with all the bells ringing and the angels flying up and saying, you know, let's all hold hands and cuddle each other and all will be well. You know, it's, it's because that's not the story that we're in. The story is, a, is one of endless struggle. And I don't see struggle necessarily as a bad thing. It's endless engagement that's going to be problematic it's going to have its moments of joy and its moments of rage, but it's ongoing and it's constant. And you just have to go with it. And Māori say, Apākehā say to me, oh, God, I can't stand it because, you know, I'll do something wrong or I'll get told off or Māori always seems so cross with Pākehā. I just go, yeah, that's all right. That's what you get. You know, that's how it works. And it's this kind of endlessness, endlessness of it that I actually like because there is no solution. There's no moment when we're all going to wake up one Monday morning and say, Alleluia, we're all in love with each other, everything's fine. It's never going to be like that in the whole history of the world, actually, but in New Zealand it's not going to be like that. So just let's get on with today, with today's relationships. Um, and I guess, yes, I do start with a story at the beginning of the book 
an embarrassing story. <laughs> and then I come back to it at the end. So the story starts with me going into this marae. Uh, it's a little church. Well, it's a marae. At Tati. Completely nutty. I mean, I went in there and it, I ended up sitting in this crowded meeting house situation and I was the only park in there. Nobody knew who I was and I didn't know where I was. You had to read it to see why I got there. But So I had to just sit, sit there and I couldn't escape physically. There were too many people in there and it was just excruciating and people were looking at me thinking, who the hell is this weird foreigner in our midst? And um, anyway, it was just a bit of a, a story about me being utterly out of place. And this old woman who was sitting next to me, just she could see I was panicking. She just patted my leg. And I just sat and I just relaxed, utterly relaxed, and let everything just wash over me. And I felt extremely peaceful. And I just had this moment of revelation. It's all right. It's all right. And um, so then at the end of the book, if, you, if you're reading it carefully, Jeanette, as I see you have, <laughs> I, I take the story back and I'm just walking along the road towards this particular <laughs> moment and saying everything's going to be all right. But I think, I, yeah, that's what I liked, is both a moment of discomfort but also a moment that turned into a profound peace as well. So it really sums up your book. And I think the quote, one of the quotes that I took away from it was about the inevitable Pākehā state of permanent, lively discomfort. So, as you say, we need to embrace that. And I'm just looking at the time, and I think we've got about just over another 10 minutes. So maybe we'll see if we've got some questions from the audience. Now, we've got a couple of microphones here. I'd be interested in your view of the Treaty of Waitangi and how, whether you think the treaty detracts from or contributes to building relationship with Maori and New Zealand and whether or not you think it might be time for it to be renegotiated. Good question. The treaty is a wonderful thing. Um, and the treaty you know, in, in, in all the state institutions in New Zealand. I mean, we're very lucky in New Zealand because we have kind of bipartisan support at the moment, and we have for quite a long time, apart from a few weird blips. We have bipartisan support for the um, significance of the treaty in our history and in this Crown-Hapu relationship. So that provides our foundation. And... It's a wonderfully interesting document. Well, in fact, it's two documents. In fact, there were nine treaties, I mean, nine copies. Um, and the English language one, which is what the British used, is different in meaning from the Maori version because those two English concepts or British concepts and Maori concepts cannot just collapse neatly into each other. And so you have two different worlds expressed in those two documents, the Māori, the, the, the Treaty of Waitangi in English and Te Tiriti o Waitangi in Māori. And I really recommend that you read up on this because it's very interesting, the differences between those two documents. 
And I think what's important is not for us to say, oh, this is a terrible thing because there are these differences and nobody can agree. Well, nobody is going to agree. That's never going to happen. And if we renegotiate something, nobody would agree on that either. So, you know, we might as well stick with what we've got. Um, and it's a great basis for engagement, conversation, debate, um, and I definitely recommend you read, um, whether it's Claudia Orange or um, Anne Salmon's got some wonderful articles um, on Newsroom and places like that, that really break down um, both those sets of words and provide a very rich sense of the tensions that exist between these two worldviews that still exist today. So I guess I find the treaty a marvellous thing, politically, culturally, socially, historically, um, and certainly it's a very live, very, uh, it's an alive document, it lives, and it's constantly being um, rethought, and, you know, people start saying, well, oh, Māori are claiming airwaves. Well, they didn't have airwaves in 1840. No, they didn't. But that's not the point. The point is that was a negotiated relationship, permanent relationship. So we're living in this permanent relationship in the modern time. So how do we negotiate that in all of the, in all of the technologies that we now have? And um, I, I just find the treaty is a, is a really useful thing. Um, and we're lucky to have it, really lucky, because I know... You know, Australian Aboriginal people are talking about developing a modern-day treaty with the Australian state, um, and we have quite a few conversations with um, Aboriginal scholars about this, um, you know, ambivalent conversations. This discomfort and struggle going on, um, how extreme do you think this will get? In any struggle and in any engagement, um, you get sort of pushbacks from people who don't like, who are anxious about change. Um, and, of course, particularly when terms like racism and white supremacy get thrown around, things escalate and rages start. And, you know, as we've seen from some of the anti-vax actions, there's an adoption of some of the kind of extremist rhetoric um, that's come out of the United States in the last year or two as well. Um, and so, yes, I think that's, I mean, you could say it's part of the struggle, but it's not a good, I mean, I see struggle, generally speaking, as, as, a, as a, a kind of feisty engagement, whereas this is more on the extreme edges, which are problematic, um, which just reminds us how we've got to keep the relationship and the conversations and the engagements going because it's those central Māori elders or Māori leaders and Pākehā leaders who they will set the, the kind of centre ground. Um, and so those conversations have to be kept alive and healthy and ongoing because it's when people start withdrawing from each other that you do see these, um, yeah, that things get out of balance to the extent that they can become dangerous. And, yes, these acts are, are disturbing, very disturbing. Thank you. But we can't, but on the other hand, I want to say we can't let them 
dominate our thinking because we do like, especially through social media, like to pick up on some extreme act mm. and then blow it out of all proportion and get very neurotic about it when in fact the vast majority of people are not behaving like that or not doing that kind of thing. So we've got to also be careful that we don't give it too much oxygen uh, as well. So it's, yeah, these are complicated Complicated questions. Thanks for your question. And we've got another one. Kia ora. Would you like to comment on the number of Māori people who choose not to be Māori? Because that does concern me. That, that they seem to not to want to own their identity. Yes. I mean, on the one hand, it's not my problem. I mean, I shouldn't... It's not up to me as a Pākehā to tell a Māori person to be Māori. Mm. On the other hand, I suspect that some of the Māori, ethnically Māori people, who are caught up in some of these demonstrations that we're seeing at the moment, exist outside of the um, identity, if you like, provided by their hapū, because they're disenfranchised or disconnected from their cultural roots and their whakapapa. And that can lead people to become quite adrift. Um, and often we find even in our prisons, I've got a, a friend who works in the prison up here, and she said so many of these men in prison are disconnected from their whakapapa. They're disconnected from their Māori identity. They don't understand themselves as Māori in that way. And that has led them into these dangerous places because of that um, dislocation. So from that point of view, yes, I mean, that is a problem. And what's happening in places like the prisons and other places is that a, a money is being put in, as it should be, into programs to help young Māori men and women to reconnect to their cultural identity um, and their, the, the, the beauty and strength of their own people. Uh, and, this, and this is a very healing thing. And um, all we can do, I think, as Pākehā is to support all those Māori-led efforts to, um, to lead those kinds of um, programmes and changes. Um, please join me in thanking um, Professor Jones for a really wonderful kōrero tonight.